I'd like to thank a brand new sponsor, Literati, for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids that are delivered right to your door. For a limited time, you can go to literati.com Peter for a 25% discount off your first two orders. So pick your kids book club gift today. Well, I hope everybody had a great COVID Thanksgiving yesterday. We finished a holiday-shortened week early today. It was a half day of trading. Of course, there was no trading yesterday for the Thanksgiving holiday, but the markets did finish the day and the week higher. In fact, today, the NASDAQ composite traded to a new all-time record high. Of course, the flip side of everybody putting risk on in the stock market was that they took risk off in the gold market. Gold finished the week on a down note. It was a down week. Gold was down about another 20 bucks today. On the bright side though, gold stocks managed to finish the day positive. In fact, they were positive for most of the day, even though at one point gold was down better than $30. In fact, it had one of those real sharp sell-offs early in the morning, kind of before the market even opened. Maybe some people just hit the bids there on a slow Friday after Thanksgiving. That might have created some opportunities for people to buy gold stocks. You know, I've often thought that bigger players who want to buy gold stocks rush in and short gold futures to get those stocks to move down. And then they pick up and buy those stocks at a bargain. And then maybe later on, they cover their gold shorts. But even if they lose a little bit shorting gold, they make up for it by getting a better buy on their gold stocks. But, you know, rather than talking too much about gold or the market, I want to really start off today's podcast by talking about Bitcoin. And normally, you know, I kind of save the Bitcoin commentary for the end of the podcast. But today I'm going to accelerate it and talk about Bitcoin right out of the gate because Bitcoin really uh, stole the show as far as volatility over the last few days. In fact, we had a bit of a Thanksgiving Day massacre uh, in Bitcoin. In fact, the holders got roasted like uh, a Thanksgiving turkey, although they had been enjoying some pretty big gains uh, leading up to Thanksgiving. So putting it all in perspective, they're not doing too bad. A lot of it depends on what happens. You know, today we had about a 10% decline in the Bitcoin trust, the Grayscale Bitcoin trust, GBTC, down 9.73%. Although at the lows, it was down, I think, better than 15%. You know, it did drop about 7% on Wednesday before, you know, before the Thanksgiving holiday. And, you know, it was interesting that the sell-off really started in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It dropped about 7% before Bitcoin even turned negative on the day. Uh, Then Bitcoin rolled over a little bit later in the day, uh, but the Grayscale Trust led, led the decline. In fact, if you look at the total drop that that trust has had from Wednesday's high to today's low, which is basically, you know, two trading days, right? They were separated by a day that you couldn't trade. So really the next day, the trust has fallen by 27% from Wednesday's peak to Friday's low. That's an entire bear market in really the span of one day. Bitcoin itself 
not down as much. I think maybe 14 or 15% peak to trough. We got up to about 19,500 on Wednesday. We came very close to, but didn't quite make a new all-time record high. You know, I see different reports of exactly what Bitcoin's record high was. So I'm not really sure exactly what it has to print to make a new high, but everybody seems to agree that it came short and didn't quite make it there. And then we had this very, very big sell-off. The low that I saw so far, and as I'm recording this, Bitcoin's about 16,800. The low I think we got to last night uh, was about 16,200-ish. Of course, it's always different depending on which exchange you look at. The question is, where do we go from here? I mean, clearly, Bitcoin can make a new high. I mean, it almost made it on Wednesday. So you can't really rule out the fact that it may have another rally. But in a way, the fact that it came so close to making a new high, yet couldn't do it, may suggest that there's a lot more selling out there. Because if they could have pushed it to a new high, they probably would have, except they're running into a lot of resistance. So we'll see. Remember, I've been saying for a long time that I thought the high was in and that the bubble peaked in 2017 and all that was left was for the air to come out. Now, it certainly looks less likely now that that prediction is going to pan out, but you never know. As I was saying on my last podcast, everybody was just assuming that it was a foregone conclusion that Bitcoin would make a new high. And I kept saying that that wasn't the case, that it could just as easily crash before it makes a new high as after. But regardless of whether or not it makes a new high, I still expect the price to crash. Let's see. You know, we're in a very, very vulnerable position right now, technically, for a much more substantial pullback than the one we've had. Clearly, there's a lot of insiders that don't want that to happen, highly manipulated markets. So to the extent that they can drive Bitcoin to a new high, they're going to try their best to do it. The question is, can they succeed? I want to talk a little bit, though, about this Bitcoin investment trust, GBTC, because there's some interesting facts about this trust that a lot of people really aren't considering. In fact, initially, I kind of believed that if people wanted to sell the Bitcoin trust, and if the trust started to trade at a discount, they could just redeem uh, for a net asset value. But it turns out that's not the case. I mean, right now, a lot of the bigger players who are putting money into the Bitcoin trust were doing just that because the trust really trades at a premium. I think right now the premium is about 14%, right, based on where the trust closed and where the price of Bitcoin was when it closed. People who are buying GBTC are paying a 14% premium to what it's actually worth based on the net asset value of their crypto portfolio. You know, in addition to that, you have to pay a 2% annual fee. So that adds up. I mean, if you're a long-term holder, every year you're paying 2% for the privilege of having your Bitcoin stored by that third party when you can easily just go and buy Bitcoin yourself and pay no fee. But what I discovered is that while people can send cash into the Grayscale Trust and be issued new shares, the reverse is not true. So if the price of the fund is dropping and it's then at a discount to its NAV, you no longer have the option of withdrawing your money. 
All you can do is sell your shares into the market and accept whatever discount uh, the market is offering. Now, this makes the trust a particularly risky investment for investors. And it also helped the trust to manipulate the price of Bitcoin higher because as all this new money was flowing into the Bitcoin trust, the trust was able to take that money and buy up Bitcoin in the market, helping to push the price of Bitcoin higher. But if the investors in the trust, if they want out, if the only way they can get out is by selling the shares, if they can't redeem their money directly from the trust, then the trust itself never actually has to go into the market and sell any of its Bitcoin. In fact, since so much cash was coming into the trust, the trust was also able to use that cash to cover its 2% fee. So the trust has only been buying Bitcoin. It hasn't been forced to sell any. But I believe all that's going to change because in this next Bitcoin bear market, which is coming, I think that shares of this trust are going to trade at a discount to NAV. And this is going to be a big problem for Bitcoin itself because once GBTC trades at a discount, then a lot of people who might ordinarily just go and buy Bitcoin will just buy GBTC instead. Because instead of being at a 14% premium, if it's at a 14% discount, well, if you could buy your Bitcoin cheaper by going uh, to GBTC, people might as well do it. Even with a 2% annual fee, depending on how long you think your holding period is going to be, it might be a particularly good deal. Now, of course, the risk is that the discount gets bigger. You can buy it at a 14% discount. It can go to a 15% discount or 30% discount or a 50% discount. So you have that added risk, but you also have the potential of the discount to go away or for the discount to become a premium. In fact, you could have some ARBs in there that might go in and short Bitcoin futures and buy GBTC if the spread is wide enough. And so this, I think, is going to be problematic. But, you know, I've read a lot of people think that this is actually a positive for Bitcoin because they say that, hey, all the Bitcoin that are owned by GBTC Trust, those Bitcoin are now permanently removed from the supply of actual Bitcoin, right? Because they can never be sold. They're trapped in the, this fund. And so somehow this is reducing the supply and therefore making the Bitcoin that are not in that trust more valuable because the ones that are in the trust can't actually be used for anything, right? They could just be gambled with. They can't be transacted. And so people think this is a positive. But you have to understand an important dynamic that they're missing. And that is the 2% annual fee. Because to the extent that GBTC begins to trade at a discount, Nobody is going to deposit money into GBTC in exchange for shares. They'll just buy their shares at a discount in the market. Because if you buy them from the fund, they're going to issue the new shares at NAV, not at the discount. So if you can get them at a discount, well, then that's what you'll do. And then that means the flow of money going into GBTC completely dries up. That means GBTC will no longer be buying any more Bitcoin in the market. Now, it's been a major buyer. So without that buying, you know, who's going to step up and take its place? But more importantly, they still have to charge this huge 2% annual fee. And where is GBTC going to get the money to pay the fee if no cash is coming in and all they have are Bitcoin? 
Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Well, obviously, the trust has to sell its Bitcoin into the market in order to pay itself the 2% fee. And so in the future, I think that the annual selling of Bitcoin coming from GBTC will be greater than all the supply uh, being sold by Bitcoin miners. I mean, the miners aren't going to be able to sell that much uh, Bitcoin on an annual basis. Remember, the amount being mined continuously goes down. And I think this Bitcoin trust is going to be so big uh, that they're going to be selling more Bitcoin than any of these miners. And so this is going to be a steady source of supply that the market is going to have to absorb. Uh, as uh, as GBTC has to continue to pay its 2% fee. And of course, if it's trading at a discount, if people buy GBTC at a discount, the fee that they're paying is actually a lot more than 2% or could be a lot more depending on how big the discount is because the 2% annual fee is based on the NAV. So let's say the discount got to 50%, which would be a huge discount, but let's say that happened. Uh, and then you bought it, well, you'd be paying a 4% annual fee based on the price that you actually paid to buy the Bitcoin. Now, of course, you could buy your Bitcoin with no annual fee if you just go buy them in the market, but you know you wouldn't get them at a 50% discount. But the, my point is that thinking that this is great news for Bitcoin ignores the fact that this trust eventually is going to be a major seller of Bitcoin on the way down, and that's going to help propel the market lower. And as the discount gets bigger and bigger, the arbitrage opportunity becomes to go in and sell Bitcoin and buy the trust, which puts more downward pressure on Bitcoin as people sell it, which actually puts more downward pressure on the trust as well. One more point I wanted to make too is on the reason for the decline. And one of the reasons that's out there is that on Wednesday, I think around the time maybe that the GBTC started to sell off, there was a tweet out there warning about the rumor that the Trump administration and Mnuchin, before they leave, right in this lame duck session, they are going to announce some broad and sweeping new regulations, KYC, uh, know your customer, AML, anti-money laundering type regulations that are going to be focused on Bitcoin wallets. And they're going to put a lot more pressure on anybody who is transacting with Bitcoin to know exactly who the customers were and where the Bitcoins came from. I mean, not just where the customer who is transacting got them, but where the person that gave them to them got them and where they got them. In other words, you got to go back and you got to trace the lineage of your Bitcoin to see if any of the Bitcoin that you currently own may have at one time been owned uh, from somebody who could have been, you know, living in a, in, in, a, in a problem country or that might have had the problems themselves. And apparently if they go back and they can trace these, you know, these dirty coins, then maybe nobody is going to take them 
which of course then runs the risk up of accepting Bitcoin. Because if you don't know, you know, who had your Bitcoin before you or who had it before that guy had it or before that guy had it, if you run the risk that at some point no one's going to want to transact in your Bitcoin because now you didn't pass their AML procedures, that's an added risk of owning Bitcoin. Plus, all of this extra compliance and paperwork that is going to be required before you can buy a Bitcoin is just going to make the whole prospect of owning it that much less attractive. Bitcoin is going to be a lot less appealing if you've got to disclose so much personal information in order to own Bitcoin. I mean, remember, the part of the original appeal of Bitcoin was your anonymity. And the fact that Bitcoin didn't have all these rules and regulations that you had if you wanted to use a traditional bank account or you wanted to send wires, right? Bitcoin was an escape valve from all that. But if it's not, if you're going to have even more compliance, even more regulatory red tape, even more forms to fill out, even more documentation to disclose in order to actually use Bitcoin, well, then what good is it? It's actually worse than all these other payment methods that it's supposedly going to be replacing. But not only will these new regulations, and again, they haven't even been announced yet. This is this is the speculation. But not only will these new regulations reduce the appeal of Bitcoin, but they also are going to substantially increase the cost of transacting in Bitcoin. Because any company that has to devote all of the resources the compliance resources to complying with all these rules and regulations and also uh, have some reserve for the fines that they may have to pay to the extent that they inadvertently violate one, right? They're going to have to pass on those costs to the consumer. And so the cost of actually buying and selling Bitcoin, using Bitcoin, right? Converting your Bitcoin back to fiat or converting your fiat into Bitcoin, all these exchanges, right? The cost of doing that is going to rise substantially in order to cover all that bureaucratic overhead, which means that Bitcoin is probably going to end up being the single most expensive payment method. So if you're going to use Bitcoin instead of a credit card or, you know, a Venmo or PayPal or a bank wire, right? Using Bitcoin, choosing Bitcoin as a way of transferring value or paying is probably going to be the most expensive of all the alternatives that, that are out there. So instead of reducing transaction costs, you're increasing them. And that isn't even involving the cost to the miner or the massive cost of energy, right, that gets used in order to maintain the network and validate your transactions. So all of the value of Bitcoin, whatever was supposedly there, gets destroyed. Right? I mean, it's not a store of value. It can't be used as a medium of exchange. It's way too expensive. It's way too inefficient. Everything that it was marketed to be originally, it's none of that. The only thing that people will be able to do with Bitcoin is gamble on it. Gamble that the price goes up. But why should it go up? Why should people keep buying it if it can't fulfill any of its primary functions? If it's not going to be a medium of exchange, how can it be a store of value when in theory the only value it had to store was its potential use as a medium of exchange, as digital money or digital currency? It can't just be a digital store of value if it doesn't have any inherent value in the first place. You can't store what you don't have. So this thing is a classic uh, uh, Ponzi, pyramid, 
And, you know, this could easily be the final hurrah, whether we make a new high or not. And again, uh, the euphoria that I've seen, the media coverage, all of this frenzy, everything that, that, that is going on right now is exactly the type of stuff that you would expect at the peak of a bubble. Hey, by the way, while I'm speaking about bubbles, there is a Black Friday deal going on for the bubble movie. You can get a discount if you buy that movie for Black Friday. That is a great movie. You know, the second one is going to be coming out soon. I'm not exactly sure which one. It's letusdisagree.com is the URL to get yourself a copy of the bubble movie at today's Black Friday price. You know, also, Minet.com is doing a Black Friday deal. They've got uh, 5% off on everything at Minet. And so that's a good deal. And, you know, by the way, you know, Minet Jewelry, their markups now are quite a bit higher than they were when they first got started. In the beginning, I think the markups were more like 20%. Now you're looking at 40% markups, although with a 5% discount, that brings the markup down to 33%, which is a much better deal. So again, you know, it's not a great way to buy gold, right? If you're going to buy gold, go to shift gold. Our markups are much, much lower than that. But it is the best way to buy jewelry. Nobody else can compete. In fact, if you think about it this way, let's say there's a, a Monet piece of jewelry that's $1,000, right? And if it's a 33% markup, which you would get with the discount today, you're basically getting $750 worth of gold when you spend $1,000 on a piece of jewelry, right? Well, think about it this way. You're getting $750 worth of gold without a markup at spot. That's a great deal on your gold then you're paying $250 for the jewelry, right? Assume the jewelry is worthless after you buy it, you're paying $250, but you're getting a great piece of jewelry. If you tried to buy $750 worth of gold, and then you wanted to buy jewelry for $250, the jewelry that you would get would be nowhere near as nice to wear as the jewelry that you're gonna get from an A. And that jewelry, of course, maybe it's not worthless after you buy it. So maybe you can sell a $250 piece of jewelry for 25 to 50 bucks on the secondhand market after you use it. Forget about that. That's that's practically nothing. So if you just buy the Monet jewelry, get your $750 worth of gold and figure, hey, I spent $250 to wear this beautiful piece of jewelry instead of just keeping my gold uh, in a safety deposit box or wherever you're keeping it, right, in, in your own safe, and now I don't have to buy some inferior jewelry. I could just wear this Monet around. So I think it's still a great deal, even with the higher markup. Not a gold investment, but the best way you're going to buy jewelry, uh, bar none. And it's 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 really beautiful stuff. Just go, go to Monet.com. If you've never bought it, just buy one piece, because once you get your first piece, you're going to be hooked. I mean, this is incredible. Obviously, much better for the gals and the guys. I mean, there's some nice stuff on there for men, but a lot more stuff from women because obviously women wear a lot more jewelry than we do. Uh, so if you're a guy listening to this, I mean, get it for your wife, get it for your girlfriend, and then you can keep on buying it. And, you know, better than buying regular jewelry because at least you're going to get the gold. Worst case scenario, you own this gold, uh, but you're buying some beautiful jewelry. Oh, while I'm making these announcements, I want to point out too, my debate with Harry Dent is now up online. It's on uh, YouTube. I've tweeted it out. I put it on my Facebook page. I think I favorited it on my YouTube channel. It's pretty easy to find, but check it out. Also, 
my interview with Cambridge House's Digital Gold Conference. I recorded that last week. That also just came out on YouTube today. So that's a couple of videos that I just did uh, that you can watch on the internet. For kids, it's never easy to find the right gift. We're always listening for clues as to what they want, but this entire crazy year, your little ones have been practically yelling for what they want. They want adventure, they want laughter, they want camaraderie, they want some normalcy. That's why your kids need Literati. Literati Kids is a subscription book club that sends five beautiful children's books right to your door each month, handpicked by the experts. Literati Kids has book clubs for children ages 0 to 12, and each club has age-appropriate selections tailored specifically to what your child needs. It's tough sorting through the millions of kids' books each year, trying to find rich, engaging stories for your kids. Literati has already taken care of that for you. Every month, you'll get five expertly chosen kids' books with themes like mystery, adventure, STEM, history. These are soul-enriching books handpicked by leaders in child education. And unlike other kids' book clubs, Literati Kids lets you try before you buy. You keep only the books you love and you return the rest. I mean, let's face it, with all of the electronic stuff right now, my kids, I know, what they like is a real book. Right? When they get read bedtime stories, they want a book that they can feel, that they can touch, and they can turn the pages. They prefer that than something read off a computer screen. So go to literati.com Peter and get 25% off on your first two orders so you can pick your kid's book club gift today. Remember, no one else has kid's books like these. Only at literati.com slash Peter can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids' books curated by experts delivered to your door each month. That's literati.com slash Peter and make your little one's holiday season unforgettable this year. On an earlier podcast, I had spoken about the fact that American retirees are loaded up with debt. And how this was very problematic because when people get to the stage in life where they're ready to retire, they should be out of debt. I mean, after all, how can you retire if you still have debt to pay off? You're supposed to be out of debt. You're supposed to have lots of assets. That way you can retire. You no longer have to work because your money can work for you. But if you're still paying off debt, if you still owe people money, then how can you possibly afford to retire? The reality is most Americans can't which is why they're never going to retire. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans who did save and think they're going to retire, they're not going to retire either because they're saving in currency that's about to get wiped out. People that have portfolios of U.S. dollar-denominated bonds and they think they're going to be able to live off the, the coupons, they're wrong because the coupons aren't going to buy very much and neither will the principal. So nobody is going to retire or practically nobody. That is the unfortunate consequence of this huge debt bubble. It's going to wipe out everybody, even the people who saved because they saved in the wrong currency, which is why if you do have retirement savings, you need to do what you can to get those savings out of U.S. dollars. By the way, U.S. dollar index today finally closed below 92. It's a 91 handle. This is the lowest the dollar index has traded in just over three years. And of course, this is just the beginning. The dollar is going to go much, much lower. We've barely begun to fall. And of course, all of the currencies that are in the dollar index, I mean, they're all losing value. 
It's just that now the dollar is losing value faster than that basket of currencies. For a while, the dollar was losing value more slowly. Now it's losing value more quickly, and that trend is going to accelerate. So before it does, you really got to get rid of your dollars, get some gold that shift gold, uh, you know, contact Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management, and invest those dollars in a portfolio of real foreign assets before the bottom drops out of the dollar, and you can't buy any foreign assets with a currency nobody wants. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is somebody had emailed me and said, hey, Peter, um, why are you criticizing having debt because inflation is going to wipe out that debt, which is true. Inflation will wipe out your debt, but if you don't have any assets, then you're still broke. Yes, if you're, if you're reaching retirement age and you're loaded up with debt and inflation destroys the value of that debt, you still can't retire, right? Because you don't have any savings and the cost of living is going to go right up. So yes, your debt's going to get wiped out, but that doesn't change the circumstances that you're broke. You just don't have a negative net worth anymore, but it dramatically changes the circumstance of the people who are relying on you to pay off your debt because one person's debt is somebody else's asset, right? Your liability is their asset. That's what I just said. All of the Americans who think they're gonna retire on other people's liabilities, they're not gonna retire because either they can't repay those liabilities or they're gonna get repaid with near worthless money. But this person was making the point that, well, you know, isn't it a good thing to go out, take out debt and then use that money to acquire or accumulate real assets, which is true right? I mean, obviously, if you borrow money and then you acquire income-producing assets where the income exceeds the debt cost, then that could be a good thing. But the statistics that we're talking about are already netting that out. The fact that retirees have record amounts of debt, it's not being offset by record assets other than just maybe the home that they live in if they happen to own a home. Uh, If you have debt and you use that debt to acquire real assets that generate income, then yes, you could retire. In fact, you could retire in style if your assets are international and they're producing income outside the dollar and then inflation wipes out your debt. That's fine. I I don't have a problem with that. In fact, for the right person who understands the risks, I I advocate that. The vast majority of Americans today, retired Americans, elderly who have debt, did not invest the money they borrowed in that way. They used that money to survive. They spent it. It's gone. They didn't accumulate an asset. They just bought depreciating consumer goods or they used it to pay for their food, to pay for their electric bills, just to keep their, their heads above water. People were borrowing and borrowing. I mean, some of them borrowed to get a college degree, but what the hell's that worth? You can't sell your degree in the secondary market. Now, maybe you borrowed to overpay for a residential house, but you know, if you don't have the money to maintain the property, uh, you know, what good is the house if you can't maintain it, if it starts to deteriorate and you can't uh, do the maintenance or you can't pay uh, uh, the electric costs or you can't pay the, the property taxes or the insurance, which is only going to get higher and higher. So most Americans did not do the right thing with the money they borrowed and they didn't borrow to make investments. They borrowed because that was the only way that they could survive, which is more evidence of the fraudulent nature of this entire economy. Because once upon a time in America, the middle class was able to retire debt free. They were able to pay off their mortgage and build up a nest egg and then they didn't have to work anymore and they didn't need 
help from the government. They didn't need Social Security. Thanks to the government that bankrupted everybody, you have a record number of people who now depend on the government. And of course, the government's going to let them down because the money they depend on isn't going to buy any. But I want to finish up the podcast by talking about the election because a lot of people had emailed me and they want to know why I'm not spending a lot of time talking about all the fraud in the election. And the reason for that is I don't think it's going to change anything. I don't believe that there's any way that Donald Trump is going to end up being reelected. And so it just it doesn't make any sense for me to spend a lot of time on all these theories about how the election was stolen and how Trump actually won and there was all this fraud. First of all, I don't doubt that there was fraud in the election. I mean, I think there's probably fraud in every election. I mean, there's always people who are voting who aren't supposed to vote. There are probably people who vote several times. There are dead people who are voting, right? Obviously, somebody is voting in their name. Look, there's a lot of fraud. I think it happens in every election, not just this election. Was there more fraud in this election than there has been in prior elections? Maybe, you know, maybe even probably. There probably was. But the question was, was there enough additional fraud to really change the outcome of the election? I mean, clearly there were a number of states that were very, very close. And so is it possible that in those states, uh, the fraud may have resulted in a different outcome? Maybe, maybe. But look, the, the results are not adverse to what the polls were. Remember, the polls showed that Donald Trump was going to lose. And he actually did better than what the polling numbers were suggesting. I mean, so had the polls had Trump way out ahead and then he ended up losing, well, you know, maybe you would have had a better uh, reason to claim fraud. In fact, that's what Hillary Clinton could have done, right? Hillary Clinton, all the polls showed her kicking Trump's butt, yet Trump won. I mean, maybe she could have said, hey, something here doesn't look right. You know, maybe there's some fraud. I mean, how could the polls have been so far off? Uh, but, you know, they, they were not alleging fraud back then. So the fact that the outcome is consistent with what the polling was in that the, the person that the polls thought would win did in fact win, I think that's less likely that any fraud that may have taken place was enough to actually alter the outcome, that even if there was no fraud, uh, that Biden still would have won. And to the extent that there was, I don't think there's going to be any way uh, that the proof is going to be out there. I mean, the problem was that it was a very close election. And the reason that Trump lost, and it's the same reason I always thought he was going to lose, is because the economy is not really good, regardless of COVID, and because Trump did not actually deliver on any of his promises. He didn't even come close to making America great again. He simply perpetuated the failed policies that destroyed America's greatness in the first place. And all he tried to do was out Democrat a Democrat. He wanted to give away something for nothing. That's what the whole Trump presidency was about, cutting taxes and increasing government spending. Everybody gets more from the government and pays less for it, right? It was the Republican version of a free lunch. The problem is if you get into a bidding war with a Democrat, you're never going to win. They are always going to outpromise you. And if the election is about who's going to deliver more government goodies to the public, you know, the public is going to vote for the Democrat. The problem is Donald Trump gave up the position of being on the side of limited government and economic freedom because that's not how he governed. That's not what his presidency was about. 
And so he lost the race before it even got started. So I don't think the problem is fraud or the problem is that the election was stolen. I mean, it's the problem is with democracy, right? You know, Trump was not able to offer as much free stuff as Biden, which is why he shouldn't have even tried. He should have had a campaign on freedom and on what it means to be America and a pro-America type campaign. And maybe that type of campaign could have won. I don't know. Again, it's always difficult in a democracy to outvote the masses uh, when the masses believe that they're going to get a free lunch. It's difficult to educate the masses to understand just how expensive that free lunch really is. (laughs) 